So I have the privilege of about three times a year coming to King's Church Kingston. So in the past, uh, I used to be on the staff here. I was one of the leaders here. And then about five years ago, myself and my family, another three people from King's Church Kingston moved to Istanbul, learnt language, and then three years ago started a Turkish-speaking congregation. So it's wonderful to be amongst you. Uh, it's a real joy as always. Uh, to start the preach today, what we're going to do is, as Philip mentioned, we're part of the New Ground family of churches, and there's an exciting new church plant that's taking place in New Ground at the moment. So Rachel Brand's uh, brother, young brother, uh, is leading a church planting team to Berlin. Uh, so we're just going to see a little short video about that because they're recruiting at the moment. And then after that, I'll say a few things. An adventure is an exciting journey or experience that is typically bold and often risky. What is your life adventure? Maybe it's traveling the world or a great holiday, a daring exploit or experiencing true love a successful career or owning the perfect home. I want to invite you on an adventure. My wife Sarah is from Germany and we met at a church in the UK where we shared a passion for adventure and the gospel. Jump forward a few years and now we're in Berlin. We love this city and we want to see it flourish. Berlin is one of the most influential cities in the world. As well as being one of Europe's largest and coolest cities, it's the political capital of Germany. The city has a diverse population, with around 20% of its residents coming from outside of Germany. It's a city of around 4 million people, influencing culture, politics and business around the world. When I was 20 years old, I joined a group of friends starting a new church in Wellington, New Zealand. The sense of adventure was exhilarating, as families followed the call of God to the other side of the world. It was then that I read the Great Commission for the first time. Jesus sends out his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. Later on in the story, his followers continue the adventure, traveling through Europe to influential cities, sharing the good news of the gospel. Germany has seen many great moves of God. However, it's estimated today that around 1% of Berliners attend Bible-believing churches. You could say that Berlin is spiritually dead, or that it is ready for a great move of God. The Gospel is good news. We're so excited to be starting a Bible-based, grace-filled, spirit-empowered, city-impacting church that loves God and loves Berliners. God has spoken to us as a team and as new ground, our family of churches, about playing our part in being a blessing to Berlin. We're praying for a team of people to join us from across Berlin and around the world. People of different ages, stages and cultural backgrounds. Perhaps this is the next step of the story that God has for you. We'd love you to join us on this Berlin adventure.
So if Berlin takes your fancy, if you've got stirring about that, speak to Phillips, one of the other leaders of the church, and connect with that. Honestly, I was speaking to someone about Berlin a while ago, and they said it's one of the titles it has is the atheistic capital of Europe. So there's lots of people who just don't know anything about Jesus, really. So it's a great team to get in part of. So once again, I just want to say it's a great joy to be amongst you. Thanks so much for your love. Thanks for your prayer. Thanks for your financial support. It, really, there would not be a church in Uskadar, Istanbul, unless King's Church Kingston had got behind this church planting team five years ago. There are people who are saved, who know Jesus in Istanbul because of you guys. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you for partnering with us. Thank you for standing with us. It's been a joy. Philip's asked me to kind of round off the preaching vision and value series you've had. And I'm going to be talking about making God known internationally. It's all bit become the kind of pet topic I seem to get asked for nowadays, but I'm not going to speak from just one text. If you don't mind, I'll just kind of tell a bit of a story. We might land on Matthew 28 a bit, but really I'd love to just tell you a bit of a story and then also share a few stories about what's been going on in this church with people who've left. Also, what's the Bible story and maybe some heroes from the past, but really just to stir you about the fact Uh, God's called you as a church. God's called us as individuals to be those who see the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. But before all that, I want to let me just pray. And Lord Jesus, we want to say, would you cause our ears to be open? I want to ask, please, would you speak to us? Would you work in our hearts? Lord Jesus, we want to say, uh, we want to hear your voice. We want to be moved by you. Lord God, help me. In Jesus' name, amen. Just to say, while preaching this, I still feel very much I'm preaching to myself. Some of the people I'll be reading and sharing stories about, they utterly inspire me and challenge me to live radically for Jesus. I don't feel I'm there yet. I feel lots of people I look at and go, I want to live like that. So, but to backtrack a bit, if you've put your trust in Jesus, an amazing, remarkable thing has happened to you. Once you were far off from God, now you've been brought near. Once you were separated from God, but now you've become a member of his family. Once you were lost, but now you were found. Once you were walking in darkness, but now you're walking in light. If you put your faith in Jesus, you've become known by God. You are loved by God. He delights in you. Moreover, when you become a Christian, you don't just become adopted into, uh, by God. Actually, you get adopted into the family of God. You become a member of the church, which is a place where you end up being known and loved, and you end up knowing and loving. When you became a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, a radical identity shift took place. You were saved from something. God rescued you from spiritual death. He removed your shame. He raised you up. He crowned you with honor. And honestly, that's wonderful. Quite frankly, I could quite happily talk about that uh, for the next 30 minutes. Because it's wonderful truths that we need to live in, we need to dwell upon, we need to delight in. And it's because of those realities that Jesus' followers can know joy despite of their circumstances. Even if they're going through hardships, they can know joy because in the midst of that, they find God's help and they find God's strength and they realize he's working behind the scenes. And 
new believers need to hold on to these truths, but actually as you grow as a believer, it's not as if you graduate from these truths. They remain just as important as a bedrock for who you are and your identity. And these wonderful privileges, they're not a badge of honor because you've done well as a Christian. When you put your faith in Jesus, the time you put your faith in Jesus, you became adopted, you became known by God, you became uh, transformed. And as you continue to walk in trust Jesus, as your faith continues to grow, more and more you're to encounter these truths and live in the good of them. And these are privileges for all of those who would put their faith in Jesus, who trust him. There's no exceptions. No one's excluded. As Philip said, everyone's got a seat at the table. Now, it may be that some of you today aren't Christians. You don't really know what you think about Jesus. You don't know whether Christianity is true or not. You don't know whether what I've just said uh, really has any relevance for your life. Can it really be true, you're asking? And I would just like to encourage you to explore. Keep exploring. When the first disciples met with Jesus, they didn't really know who he was or what he did. And they asked him, Jesus, where do you live? And Jesus' response to them was this, come and see. And they did. They went with him. They spent time with him. They... uh, really spent the next three years with him. And at some point in that journey, they recognized who he was. Actually, it's really good. If you're exploring Christianity, come and see. Come and watch. Be in part of this church and ask your questions. We want this church to be a place where people can explore the Christian faith. For those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, he says something more to you. He doesn't just say, come and see. He says, come and follow me. You see, when you put your trust in Jesus, it wasn't just for your personal benefit, even though, my word, the privileges of knowing Jesus are immense. He rescued you. He lifted you out of darkness. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Corinthians, he said, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. What a remarkable truth. But that's not just an end in itself. You were rescued with a divine purpose in mind. It's about knowing and it's about making known. Our lives as Christians have the ultimate goal of being lived for him. It's about knowing God and it's about making him known. And Paul goes on in that bit I just quoted from 2 Corinthians. And almost a logical conclusion of being new creations, of being renewed. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. That's the NIV. I think this is the ESV translation. We're God's ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal for reconciliation. You see, as the global church, we're to be the image bearers of God in the world. We're to be the carriers of God's presence wherever we go. Jesus said about himself, he said, I'm the light of the world. And then when speaking to his followers, he said to them, you are the light of the world. In other words, Jesus' truth so transforms us, we get transformed by him so that we start then showering the truth of who Jesus is and showing him to the world. So everywhere you go as a Christian, you're his representative. You're to be light. You're to be uh, revealing his truth. And then after Jesus' death and resurrection, prior to his ascension into heaven, he gave his people a task. And he commissioned them with these words. 
and you all know them well, they're in the end of Matthew's gospel, he said this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the earth, end of the age, sorry. Again, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is what Jesus says to his disciples, but you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. We see that takes place in the next chapter, uh, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, we're going to start off where they were, and then it was going to go out to the lands outside Jerusalem to Judea, and then beyond there to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And actually, the church was really slow at getting on with doing that task. So Jesus had commissioned them in Matthew 28. And it took persecution in the church from the stoning of Stephen to actually get the church to start going to the ends of the earth. They were a bit slow at picking up on it. But they got going. And God used persecution as a means for the gospel to go forth. I've got to uh, know of someone who's a leader of church in Ukraine. When the Ukraine-Russia crisis took place, loads of their churches just got scattered. And what happened? The consequence of this scattering was they ended up, one of their church leaders ended up being in India and planting a church there. And you go, wait a sec, that's weird. How do, but God uses these bizarre situations to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth sometimes. Things that you wouldn't have in your plan. And let's be honest, in England we're very good at having plans of how we do things. But sometimes God just blows that up and chooses another way of getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. But God is ascending and commissioning God. We see this again and again in Scripture. God saves people, God calls people, and then he sends people. And we're just going to look and sort of track that a bit in Scripture and see how God, through Scripture, again and again does that. So first of all, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, Abraham who he later names Abraham, and he says this to, them, to him. So he's living in Mesopotamia, kind of modern-day Iraq at the time. God speaks to him, Go from your country your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. So he doesn't yet know where it is. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make you know your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So he's being blessed to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham's going was to result in a blessing to the, all the earth all families, all tribes of the earth. And then it says this in verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Then a while later, after about 400 years, uh, the people of Israel ended up being in Egypt. Uh, they end up living in captivity in Egypt. God speaks to Moses, who had grown up in Egypt, but then moved out. And this is what he says to him. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now Moses wasn't needed loads of persuading to go. You see basically two chapters of him arguing with God, saying, actually send someone else, 
I don't want to go. Actually, I can't speak very well. There's a great line in the NIV which says, I'm not eloquent in speech. Please send someone else. I just love the idea he used the word eloquent, uh, but he says he, it's not, he can't speak. Anyway, but, God's, but God sends him. He eventually goes. He rescues the people of Israel. But again, God sends someone to bring a deliverance. Then we could track through other stories, but we'll just go to God calling the prophet Jonah. So again, God calls Jonah and he says this to him. Uh, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, Nineveh was the superpower of a, si- a capital city of the superpower Nineveh at the time, Nineveh at the to- uh, Assyria at the time. He didn't want to go there. And the reason he didn't want to go there was he didn't want God turning away from his judgment on the people of uh, Assyria. Because he knew, he says later on in another chapter, he says, actually, I knew you're gracious, I knew you're compassionate, and if they turn back, you will relent. But he doesn't want to go. He wants to stay amongst his own people. So what he does, he runs away from God, which is never a good idea just to say. But anyway, he does run away from God. So again, after God pulls him back, God speaks to him again. And he says this in chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So finally, I'm adding that word in, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And God was gracious to them. And God sent this reluctant prophet to go to proclaim his word. And there's other points in the Old Testament I could point about God sending and calling. And Isaiah 6 would be a classic where God calls Isaiah. And then in the New Testament we see Jesus as the ultimate example of being sent. This verse in 1 John chapter 4 says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, to be an atonement for our sins. So God the Father looks at the state of the world and sends his son into it. It talks, if you read Philippians chapter 2, it says, Christ Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped and to be held on too tightly, but he emptied himself and he became obedient he lived as a, lived like a, became almost like a slave and then became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the one who knew what it was to live in heaven, knew privilege, knew perfect peace, stepped down into a world of brokenness. And you know the story, if you've been at this church a number of years, you know the story about the fact uh, in the end he was despised, he was rejected, he was beaten... His beard was pulled out. He was crucified. God the Father sent the Son to the world. That's sending. And it's costly sending, isn't it? But there's something beautiful at the end of it.
Jesus talks actually in John chapter 12, before he goes to the cross, he says, unless a wheat of sand falls to the ground and dies, it doesn't bear fruit. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he clearly refers to that being what his life will do, it will bear much fruit. And then he says about his disciples, he says actually, he applies that very same thing to them about dying, bearing fruit. And he says, those who follow me, or those who, who are my disciples follow me, kind of do what I'm doing. Now, that doesn't mean saving the world but it, in, in the way Jesus did, but it does mean following his example. So Jesus' disciples would follow his example. So Jesus, what did he do? He sent his, so he called 12 disciples to be amongst him, to spend time with him. He then sent them into the villages around to preach the good news of Jesus, to heal the sick, to drive out demons. So that was their kind of mission statement. Preach the good news of the kingdom of God, heal the sick, drive out demons. And they did. And then he did exactly the same thing with 72 people. Uh, sent them out in twos to preach the gospel, heal the sick, drive out demons. He sent them. And then before ascending to heaven, he extended the mission. Because when he gave this mission to the 12 and the 72, it was to the villages, the Jewish villages uh, in Judea and uh, Jerusalem and near Galilee. But then the mission expands. And actually, when he says, go into all nations... And this was always the plan. Abraham was sent to be a blessing to the nations. As God had promised, all the nations will be blessed through you, he said. And we can trace that promise to be fulfilled ultimately in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then him speaking to his disciples and then saying, go to the ends of the earth. Because now salvation has been opened up to all. So let's have a look again at Matthew 28. We'll look at a bit more detail at it. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this is often known as the Great Commission. And in it, we have a statement. We have a command, and we've got a promise. The statement is this. Jesus declares, all, I've, I've died on the cross. I've risen again. I've got all authority in heaven and earth. Belongs to me. Then he gives a command and he says, go to all nations, make disciples. Teach them to obey, baptize them, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Now, just to be clear, discipling people is not the same as going as a one-off trip somewhere. Don't worry about going off one-off mission trips and explaining the gospel is great. I'm not knocking that. But discipleship involves living with people, sharing your life with people, walking with people, spending hours explaining what the gospel is and how it applies to life. So it's about pouring your life into people. So people were to go to other nations to live amongst the people, to incarnate, just as Jesus stepped down from heaven to earth, spent 30 years learning the culture and then three years doing his ministry. Actually, people go, they live amongst the people, they learn the language, they identify with the culture and then they answer the questions that people in that culture are asking and explain the gospel to them. 
then there's a promise. I will be with you always. So isn't that great? You've got Jesus at the beginning saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. But then the link in is, but I'm with you always to the ends of the earth. So this great thing is if you go, you've got this great confidence that God is with you. And he doesn't just have a meager amount of power. Will he be okay? Is it enough? Actually, he's got all authority in heaven and earth. Anything that happens is under his jurisdiction. If you track John's gospel, and I've been reading John's gospel in the last few weeks, what's fascinating about John's gospel is Jesus is often, quite often, uh, the opponents of Jesus want to kill him because he's annoying them by clearly claiming he's equal with God or clearly pointing out that he's the Messiah. They want to kill him, and they can't because it says his hour had not yet come. Consistently, there's this phrase, they try to harm him, but they can't because his hour had not yet come. And then there's a time when Jesus says, my hour's come. And that's when all kinds of suffering and difficulty came. But it was in God's hand. It was under control. Actually, nothing happens in your life outside of God's jurisdiction. And when you're serving God overseas, it's a wonderful truth to know. He's in control. Actually, no one... uh, I've got friends serving in Dagestan, say. Really rough place to serve as a Christian. Lots of death threats, lots of difficulty. But no one can shoot this ministry of the gospel unless God allows it. His life's safe unless the hour comes. So the call of the church is to go to the ends of the earth to see many people hear the wonderful news of Jesus that you can know relationship with God, that you can know salvation, that you can walk in, you can find light instead of darkness. So how's the church doing on fulfilling the Great Commission? So 2,000 years have passed. First of all, let's do a bit of a terminology definition thing. Uh, Often when people say, go to all nations, actually the Greek of that phrase, probably people would often describe it as more as go to all peoples, or go to all peoples groups would be often how lots of people define that. And then missionologists, people who study mission, have then tried to define what a peoples group is. And this is how they've described it. A people group is the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church-planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. So, obviously, a natural barrier is language, for example. If you don't speak the language of the people, it's going to be very difficult to communicate the gospel. So, try, so people groups are defined often by language, but also there are cultural things as well. So, for example... Uh, Kurdish people and Turkish people, they would be different people groups. They would, uh, there's, there's a natural barrier uh, because of the cultures that makes uh, Kurds explaining the gospel to Turks sometimes difficult and Turks explaining the gospel to Kurds difficult. Now, it's possible. Uh, God can use all things. But it's not, it's, it, there's sometimes barriers to the gospel's natural transmission. Now, in the world, there are 17,013 people groups. Now, of those, 7,076 are unreached people groups. Now, that doesn't mean no one in those groups has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, or no one's even... it It may be that there are a few people who are Christians in there, but there's no group of churches or, or churches that are run by people of that culture who are part of that people's group who are then sharing the gospel and planting churches in that area. 
In other words, basically, you're very unlikely, if you're in one of these unreached people groups, to ever stumble across someone who's a Christian who would be able to tell you about Jesus. So 2,000 years after Jesus has come and given us this commission, the work's fast. The world population, 7,597,000, give or take a bit. Of that, 3,131,000 live in unreached people groups and would have difficulty hearing the gospel. The work's immense, folks. And it's clear that there's much work to be done. There's a fresh need for the church to embrace global missions and for churches that are sending individuals and teams overseas to see the gospel reach to the ends of the earth, particularly in areas where obviously not many people know about Jesus. Now, as a church, I'd like to just point out some of the things that we can celebrate about what you guys have been doing in the last few years. Uh, personally, we as a family are so appreciative of your support. But let me just tell you, because I've, I've had a really fun week. I've contacted quite a few people who used to be at King's Church Kingston who aren't there anymore and, uh, because they're overseas, and saying to them, hey, what's going on? How's life? Uh, and let me just tell you a few stories of people who've come out of King's Church Kingston who are now overseas serving. So you've got Peter Michelle Foster. So Peter Michelle Foster, Pete was actually one of the leaders of this church for a number of years on full-time staff. Peter Michelle uh, moved to the Czech Republic, must be about five years ago. Anyway, uh, they have now started, a t- uh, Michelle is actually Czech, but they've now in the last two months started a church plant uh, in Pardubice in the Czech Republic an international church plant, so it's English-speaking with translation into Czech. But great, isn't it? I mean, they came out from us, uh, and now this is what they're doing. They're part of the relational mission group of churches. Okay, then there's another person, the lovely Esther Crook. Esther Crook is church planting in Frankfurt at the moment. So she moved out three years ago to join a church planting team that was part of the relational mission family of churches. Uh, she, now, Esther, German-speaking because her mum was German, so she's a bi- very bi- bilingual, but moved out there, got a job, and is now serving in this church in Frankfurt. In the last three months, this church has seen three people become Christians. So it's just exciting to hear. And I was speaking to her this week, and she was just saying, it's great. The church is growing. People are uh, becoming Christians. So that's Esther Crook. You've got Paul and Seder. So Paul and Seder moved uh, two years ago from here uh, to... Sierra Leone. Now, Sierra Leone is really one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, It's actually majority Muslim. Uh, They're based in Freetown, Sierra Leone. Now, Paul works. uh, He's setting up a hotel out there. So uh, that's what he's doing as a job. Uh, You've got Seda, who's working at the international school there. But alongside, in the last two years, this is what they've been involved with. They're involved in setting up a children's home where they've had 35 people, uh, children who've been involved in that. They've currently got 10 people between the ages of, 10 children between the ages of 6 and 17 who are living with an auntie who takes care of them. These are children who otherwise would be on the streets. Uh, 
They found another home for 17 other children and placed them with families because they believe the best thing for children isn't to be kept in orphanages, but to be with families. So they've done this project in the last two years. They're they're self-funding this. Then they've also done another project, which is they've now got about 35 or 40 ladies who they're training either to be tailors or hairdressers. Now, these ladies were otherwise working on the street as prostitutes. So they've taken them up, they're giving them dignity, they're giving them a trade. Paul's talking about helping, trying to hopefully give them contracts at the hotel that he's running uh, so that they can have a kind of natural work uh, placement afterwards. Then you've got Paul also involved with another couple of projects which are business business as mission type projects, we're doing seed funds. So he's doing a seed fund uh, working with a community of disabled people uh, just outside Sierra Leone, where these people are destitute, so he's giving them a bit of money, finding $4,000 to start businesses, to see them, again, dignified with work. Or they're working in a 90% majority Muslim community, again, to start some business where these people are just in destitute poverty, in destitution and poverty, to start them doing business projects. So these are guys who are amongst us, our friends, who are doing amazing works to see the love of Jesus reflected in a country where there's lots of brokenness. And they're also supporting some churches out there as well and going on to an international church. Then there's us. So we moved to Istanbul as a family five years ago with our four children. They're now 11, uh, 9, 7 and 5. 8 and 6. 11, 9, 8 and 6. Uh, doing well. Uh, We moved out there with Emma, Sam and Liz. So Emma, when we were out there, got married to Erzger. And the picture of the person next to Erzger is uh, his mum, who became a Christian just before we started the church. So we did two years just language learning and then planted a church. And God is working amongst us. We're a small community, but God's doing some amazing things. And... I think what I find so striking about these stories, in fact, I think what I find so striking is I think all these people, I don't think, certainly myself, I don't think we're anything remarkable. I don't think we're anything special. I think we're very ordinary. There are other people who are far more talented than I am, far better at communicating, certainly far better linguistically than I am. There's no doubt about it. But there's something of the fact that God calls ordinary people, he places a passion in their hearts and says, go. And when people go and God's called them, God can do remarkable things for ordinary people. And if there's one thing I would love you to get from today is God doesn't look for superheroes. He just looks for ordinary people who will hear his call and go. So for me, as a 19-year-old, I felt God someone shared to me about unreached people groups, and I thought, my word, how is it that people in Turkey, say, just can't access the gospel, can't even hear about the name of Jesus? And God placed something in my heart and said, well, maybe that's you. You can go there. And over, it took 18 years to actually come to a place where we went. But God just chooses ordinary people, works in hearts. And we just need lots more of an army of ordinary people going to see the gospel reach the ends of the earth. We need loads more churches like yours praying for gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Funding teams, supporting, pastorally providing for people who have gone. 
Now, it's interesting. I think Jesus' sending strategy probably wouldn't pass health and safety checks. This is how Jesus describes his mission, his sending of the disciples. He says this, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Nice. So I'm sending you out. We know wolves, what do wolves like doing? They like eating sheep. So God says, Jesus, I'm sending you out. There you go, sheep. Wolves like eating sheep. It doesn't seem particularly health and safety. It seems a bit risky as a strategy. It might end up in some difficult consequences. When God calls Isaiah, uh, he's an amazing vision of God. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then God basically says this message. Go to a people who are hearing but never understanding, who are seeing but never perceiving. And for 40 years, he ministered in that kind of context. It was difficult. People didn't go and respond to his message and go, yes, brilliant, Isaiah, I'm on board. Or you take Jeremiah. He started proclaiming his prophetic message when God sent him. He got chucked in prison. And that still happens today. So there was Andrew Brunson, who you probably heard about in the news, the Turkish pastor who was put in prison, uh, just got released a few months ago, uh, a month ago. In many places in the world, you would not be welcomed with open arms if you go to preach the gospel, if you go to live there even. People sometimes just don't want to hear the gospel. You will be like sheep among wolves. One of my friends in my congregation became a Christian in May this year. Beautiful example of God drawing someone. We baptized him in July. In September, he was on holiday with his family. He shared with them about his baptism and how he's come to faith. This is what his father said to him. Keshke yapmasidon, keshke dolmasidon. I wish you hadn't done that. I wish you hadn't been born. So you've got this young guy, 25, who's been rejected by his family. Now, I think there's going to be some bridge building. I don't think it's necessarily going to be absolute disaster. But there's a cost for this person to become a Christian. You've got my dear friend, tour guy, became a Christian two months ago. And when he became a Christian, the night he became a Christian, sorry, we were looking at Matthew 10 together. Matthew 10's story of Jesus talking about, I'm sending you a sheep among wolves. Talking about the fact you will go to court. You might get thrown in prison. Your family might turn against you. And it was in the context of that, he'd spent a year with us before becoming Christian because he knew that when he became a Christian, there could be severe cost to play, particularly in losing, breaking relationships. But he's become a Christian. That art... After reading those passages that day, he said, let's pray. I want to commit my life to Jesus. I've been sitting on the fence too long. But there's a cost. Jesus didn't just say, become a Christian, and everything's going to be wonderful and easy. He said, I'll always be with you to the ends of the earth. But he never said, it's just going to be straightforward. Brothers and sisters, this is the same call for us today. We're still sent to be sheep among wolves. That's still Jesus' strategy. It's not very safe. It may seem downright crazy, but Jesus still has that same call for people. Now, we, he then goes on and says, 
So be wise as serpents and innocent and doves. So it's not like being stupid, but it's just recognizing that sometimes there will be negative consequences when you follow Jesus from this world's perspective. We're to live radically, to lay our lives down for Jesus. And in my life, I see such a desire for comfort over pain. I see a risk aversiveness in me that can hinder me living boldly for Jesus. But we need to be stirred again and captivated by Jesus' words. Our calling ultimately is to be allegiant to him. And he laid down his life for us. Therefore, we're allegiant to him. Isn't it that right? We need to capture once more the radical trust and obedience of those who went for the first missions overseas, who went to the nations with the expectation that they never would return. People who, when they went, let's say to Burma or to uh, the New Hebrides, uh, they used to pack their possessions in a coffin because they knew that they probably wouldn't come back, and actually that coffin was then also dual purpose. They took their possessions there, and then their body would be shipped back to America or England afterwards. prior to John G. Patton going to the New Hebrides, an island where cannibalism was rife. In 1858, one of his church leaders tried to dissuade him. This is what he said. A Mr. Dixon exploded. The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals! But to this, Patton responded. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day of my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. Or take Adoniram Judson who went to Burma in 1812. Just prior to going, he fell in love with Anne Hazeltine. He asked her to marry him. And then Anne said, well, actually, you should probably ask my dad. So Judson wrote a letter to the father-in-law. Now, I remember when I wrote a, uh, spoke to my father-in-law about marrying Sophie, I sort of said, I'd really like to marry her. Is that OK? And he said, yes. This is the letter Anne's, fa- uh, Anne's father received. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, (laughs) whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the sea, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of wanton distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her saviour from heathens saved, through her means, from eternal woe and despair. 
And the father-in-law received that letter. And this is an amazing example of a father who loves his daughter, but knows the gospel. He says, let her choose. It's her call. And Anne decides, yes, I'm going with Judson. Anne did go through many hardships on the mission field. She had three pregnancies. The first ended in miscarriage while moving from India to Burma. Her second child, Roger, was born in 1815 and died at eight months. Her third child, Maria, lived only six months after Anne herself died in 1826 of smallpox. Adoniran Judson himself lost two wives and six of his 13 children on the mission field. As a father of four, I can't imagine it. Was it worth it? Was that sacrifice worth it? Yes. A thousand times yes. While Judson only had 18 converts after 12 years, when he died, he left hundreds of churches and over 8,000 believers. Was it a life wasted? Or was it a life well spent? Brothers and sisters, as I read these stories, when I see the faith of my new believers who are living under pressure, it makes me desire to commit wholeheartedly to live for the Lord Jesus and to give myself to him afresh. I hope it does the same for you. It's not trying to be hammering anything on you. It's just saying we've got a mission to go. We're called to go. And as a church, whether or not some individuals actually from this church, I believe, will go again and go to places which will be hard to share the gospel. And others of you will be committed to praying. And, others, and as a church, we'll be committed to financing. But let's be those who are committed to see all peoples on the earth hearing the gospel and having an opportunity to find out this wonderful Jesus that we know has transformed our lives. And this call for radical living is for you whether you're in Kingston or whether you're elsewhere. We're called to lay down our life for him, to live for him, to be unashamed of his name. Let me pray. If I could only stand, we're just going to do a song as a response. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that it's worth it. We want to thank you that you first loved us. That Lord, you, Jesus, stepped down from heaven, came to earth, suffered, died, uh, crucified but then you were exalted and you conquered death and you conquered shame and you opened up the way of salvation Lord Jesus we want to say we want to live for you we're not content to have our feet half in we want to put both feet in and say we want to live for you and Lord I I realize that can be costly but thank you that you are faithful thank you that all your promises are true thank you that you're always with your people thank you that everything is under your jurisdiction amen